Right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Broken Oars Podcast. We have another one of our interviews for you today. This time we're talking to someone with some, I think, incredibly important things to say about rowing. We are talking to Mr. Jez Moore, formerly of Leander Rowing Club. Aaron, why don't you tell us a little bit about Jez and his history? I love that. I love the way you you put me on the spot just to check that I've done my homework. That's the teacher in you coming out, isn't it? Well, one of us has to. Lewin is some I think somewhat undersold Jez as you know because we've been we've been blessed with luminaries uh, recently and he might not be as famous as a Hodge or a Jack Beaumont but he is integral to the success of people like Hodge and Jack Beaumont and he has some very interesting things to say about differences between club and elite rowing and how we can approach training in a way that means that we maybe don't have the brain drain and talent drain that we have in the clubs when people reach their mid to late 20s have partners have children have careers and one thing has to go and it's generally the rowing that loses out until maybe a little bit later on in life and something that i found particularly fascinating is that there should be a difference between the way we race and train as club rowers from the way that elite rowers race and train and that the paradigm um, that club rowers should look to elite rowing for how they train, how they race, is not necessarily the best way of looking at things. Shall we catch up with everyone on the other side of Jez's interview? I think we should. Very quickly, my rowing background is I I started late in sport, not as late as you, uh, Lou. I started uh, when I was about 20 over in Eton Excelsior because a friend of mine rowed there. Um, I won a few pots. Um, then I went to University of Bristol. I rode there as captain of rowing. Uh, we won a lot more pots. Um, went to Henley a few times, and we never won there, unfortunately. Then I went to Thames Tradesman. Uh, won an awful lot of pots at Thames Tradesman. Um, I was in one of the fastest club eights for a couple of years. Again, Henley always eluded me. Um, and then as I sort of came to the uh, autumn of my rowing career, or competitive career, I rode at Marlow. And, of course, Steve Redgrave is a Marlow man. And Marlow boasts a lot of... Um, at the time, boasted an awful lot of good juniors. A lot of juniors had gone to the Great Britain team, and that's why I did my coaching for the junior team, etc. But it became a kind of a tradition at the end of the season when Maidenhead had their regatta. Uh, they'd have a sprint event, um, uh, you know, 500 metres, as you, you know, well know. And um, uh, we used to get our ringers in, and Maidenhead used to get their ringers in because they had uh, um, Eric Sims was in the GB squad then and had, had a few sort of other good players. So it was basically two cooked eggs. Okay. <laughs> 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 we competing this thing. And I must have I must have won it about five times. I, I, we definitely lost it once. Um, but I've rode it with uh, Mark Buckingham, who a um, very good friend of mine who went to Seoul Olympics with Matthew Pinson. So we would stack it with internationals, junior internationals, and a few sort of club first eight guys like myself. And um, as, as I remember, before uh, Steve Regrave wrote his book, I said, Steve, you cannot write a book without me telling you know, the, the story. That I can't remember which Olympic Games it was, but um, it was quite early on in his career. It wasn't his first. It was probably his third, I'm guessing. Um, he, left the, he left the training, the squad training early, and he made an excuse to Jürgen. He had to, and this was the last squad session before they went to training camp before the Olympic Games, and he skived off to come down to Mainhead to row with his mates at Marlow. 
And I said, you, we've got to tell the story because no one would believe me uh, or would believe that you would do it. And, uh, and if Jürgen ever found out, thank God he's just retired, he would have got, he would have gone through the roof. And, um, but he literally skived the squad session to come. It's a bit like James Hunt jumping into a Formula One car, I'm showing my age before your time and wringing a car by its neck and winning, you know, and, uh, having a black Labrador waiting for him faithfully on the riverbank, that, that sort of thing. It was, you know, um, you know, jumpers for goalposts, um, healthy sort of good stuff. And, and Jack Beaumont, who's a lovely guy, is absolutely right. Where are the personalities of rowing? Now, where's the fun? Where's the, oh, come on, let's just get in and wring its neck. You know, where's, where's that sort of cavalier, sort of let's just give a black eye type of attitude. And it's sorely lacking. And it's uh, seeping down to club level where these sterile 2,000 metre straight courses, which are just deadly and killing the sport, in my view, at club level. There you go. That's my Steve Redgrave story. It's fine. It sounds like we're, we're, I, I have a Steve Redgrave story. I will tell it later. It involves um, him, his testicles and the forehead of my five-year-old stepson. Um, oh, I can tell you some testicle stories when we're up at home pier points and the, and, the, and the pool table with Steve. I mean, Steve is a very, you know, a very good um, club member at Marlow and would stand it would, you know, would stand in and turn up for, you know, uh, the, the Christmas, you know, uh, fours and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and the fact that I've got these stories to tell these days, very few people would have an equivalent story with somebody from the, you know, from today's squad. And that's so sad. Well, yeah, we've, so. we've been talking to people. So, so um, just on Monday, we were talking to Andy Triggs Hodge. Yeah, and he 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 was going on this this similar sort of thing that was sort of like he wanted to get out and he wanted to he wanted to do more fun races. One of the things he he, he said about sort of rowing training, so if you're on a river, it's don't just like go through the middle of the bridge. See if you can scrape your oars on the on the side of the bridge as you're going past. It, it seems almost as though the rowers themselves really actually want to get out and play. They're very serious about the, the business of sort of like winning big international races, but it seems as though they want to have more fun. They, they want to go out there and sort of like do kind of silly races on bendy, reedy courses with obstacles essentially on the banks. Um, yeah, and, and, and kind of this is the curse of rowing in the sense that you have a game of rugby, you have a game of football, a game of hockey. You don't have a game of 100-metre sprinting. You don't have a game of 400-metre hurdles. And rowing falls in the same trap. It is a, it's, a very, it's a purely athletic endeavour. And so having a game of rowing is a very, very difficult thing to do. That doesn't mean we should aim for something in between, some kind of compromise. But it's starting from philosophically a bad place in the, you know, to begin with. So... How, how have we got there? I mean, wh- where has it been its journey to get to this point? What- it's, it's uh, again, my opinions, are, by the way, I hasten to add, it's like a health warning. No, no, no rowers were harmed in the making of this production and, uh, and things like that. Um, the trouble is, it's a victim of success. I mean, we've been a dominant force in rowing for, what, nearly three decades now. And everybody wants to be like the heroes. Um, the same happened when Jonah Barrington in the seventies was a world champion in squash. The squash courts appeared everywhere, and everyone was playing squash. And you know, rowing—you know—well, it will never be as popular as football on these sorts. It's still a minority sport, but because it's been so successful, everybody wants to copy its success. And because the, the squad train the way they do, all the clubs are trying to ape squad programs, which I personally think is massively, massively wrong. Um, 
and the, the more training the squad do, the more training the clubs do. And, and so it feeds down. And so you sort of get this sort of one size fits all stereotypical. If you want to um, be in a top eight, you've got to do thousands of ergos and you know, loads and loads of UT2, et cetera, et cetera. And that puts a lot of people off. I, I tell you what, and I don't know this is true. I'd be very interested to compare club standard um, back, say, 20, 30 years ago to what club standard is now. And I would, I'm talking average club standard, and I would harbour a bet that it hasn't improved. Top level it may have, but I, I would harbour a bet that it has not improved in, in the grass, grass, grassroots level because so many people are intimidated and put off by the level of training and the sterile training environment and how boring it is. You know, why, for God's sake, are clubs... Or, no, not doing more sprinting, more short, sharp work. Because, I mean, I think the biggest difference at club level, uh, sorry, at squad level, is the race can easily be won. Oh, sorry, not easily. The race can often be won in the last five strokes. And you can have, you know, you look at some of the lightweight uh, crews, and, and it, there's nothing, there's half length between the whole, whole, whole load. That will never, ever happen at club level. Usually at club level, the race is won within... One and, a half, one and a half minutes within, you know, even if it's a thousand meter course, it's one in the first five. If you've got a length and a half, two lengths at 500 meters, you're going to be very, very surprised not to win it. And, you know, you do, because psychologically, you, know, you know, the athletes at club level haven't done years and years and years of training and that have the physiology and the mental, you know, it's all about the, the mechanics, the humanics. You don't have the psychology uh, and the hardness, uh, what it takes to be, you know, a, a top international athlete. Um, and so if they're, if they're down a minute and a half into it and they're feeling tired, they're not going to sort of drive on. And that's just, that's another, not a criticism. It's true at every level. And, you know, if I was coaching at a club level, I would be doing masses and masses of sprints and masses of technical work and very little flogging up and down, getting bored. So, I mean, that, that, that sort of technical work, because what you're talking about is, is working on peak speed, isn't it? it it's, yes. As the other guys drop away, and then right, okay, then we can get into our rowing and hang on. Yeah, basically, last one, last one to France stops is a wimp. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, uh, Aaron, it works. I told you <laughs> hey, don't, don't wag your finger at me. I was, I was the one voice at Agecroft that was saying we need to do as much work on our, on our technical application as we do on our physical brute grunt strength. At Agecroft, Jess, we, we averaged 24 hours a week of training and all of us had full-time jobs. And that was seen as you, if you wanted to progress and you wanted to go to Henley, which, is all, which was always seen as, you know, the, yeah. wizard of, the Wizard of Oz's shining palace in the distance at the end of the yellow brick road of the season, this was the work that you, that you had to do and you, and you had to get through. Partially, I, I will admit that I, I wore that training like a badge of pride. It meant that I was a real rower because I was doing all of this, this high volume um, graded stuff leading to the top of the mountain. The reality was I probably would have been just as fast and probably just as efficient as a rower if I'd followed a shorter, sharper training regimen. And I think yeah. what you said about the realities of club rowing and we we found in our squad we were great in in head races because our our fitness came into play we could find our rhythm and we could we could grind it out and we could never quite work out how we would get dropped in the first minute of a of a of a regatta and we'd never quite we could we could edge back but we could never row through it takes years of of 
losing races and almost winning races and then winning races to learn how to come from behind or how to get out in front and hang on. And it's, it's a skill that's when you're bashing out the ergs all the time, it's not a taught skill. You touch, you, you, you see, now I would have had a real problem with your training program because I would say you're training like rowers. Mm-hmm. And I would say, give me, give me eight athletes and I'll beat eight rowers any day of the week because right. that kind of mental flogging is just rowing, let's pull, let's pull, let's pull. And you've lost that sort of athletic kind of, I mean, um, by athlete, I mean that sort of mental sort of agility, that uh, uh, ability to vary your strategy in an instant. You know, it's the boxer like uh, Tyson, who was a one-dimensional, incredible boxer at one dimension, but he didn't have five dimensions like Lennox Lewis. It's the, um, it's 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 um, Lewis Hamilton who can who can ride drive better in the wet than he can in the dry. It's that sort of athletic sort of flexibility. And I think that had been drummed out of a crew like that. Now, when I was coaching the uh, juniors at Marlow, and um, without trying to sound uh, too arrogant, I had you know, a very good success record getting nearly all of them into the squad over the years I did it. Um, uh, in fact, all of them made national representation. Um, I, I basically, they'd come along in September um, because their school starts, they wanted to go for the squad. And I, I'd make them run seven miles three times a week. We do seven mile run three times a week. And I said, the goal here is to do this at seven minute mile pace uh, by Christmas. Um, I, I qualified weightlifting instructor and I said, you've got to be able to clean, bench press and bench pull your own body weight. That's your strength goals. Um, and and we, we, had a, we had an ergo goal as well. Um, but I said, all I want you to do is get to Christmas really, really fit, really, really strong. There's plenty of time to teach you how to row. Uh, but I, what I don't want is to drum out of you how to be athletic, how to run. You know, I said, you've got to run like a runner, not like a rower going for a run. You've got to lift weights like a weightlifter, not like a rower lifting weights. You've got to study other sports. When you cycle, you've got to have a cadence of 120 revolutions a minute. When you swim, you've got to be able to one meter per second, you know, and one stroke per second. You know, we swim like swimmers. We run like runners. That's our mentality. I want athletes. I do not want rowers. The way it was almost sold to us was if you, if you do this, what you're doing is you're, gro- you're grooving it at a, at a fundamental level, a stroke profile and a level of fitness that will not let you down at, at the end of a, of a hard race. And I felt like it was... Right, let, me set, let, let me set you to a challenge. I want you now to imagine the best squad or crew or team in the world. It doesn't have to be rowing. It could be rugby, football. It could be your office team. It could be any team you like. So let's make it even easier. It can be a virtual team. It doesn't even have to exist. Now, I don't want to know what the team is. I don't need to know what, what the team does. But if you could, in your mind's eye, in your imagination, if you can get the best team, the ultimate team in the world, in your head, and you had three, let's say two words, what was it about that team that made them amazing? Well, and I think about it. I'm going to ask you, you've got only a few seconds to think of an answer. Was it their passion? Was it their confidence? What was it? And I want each of you to come with two words, two adjectives to describe your perfect team. Magic and and genius. Magic and genius. Yeah. Effortless and flow. Effortless and flow. Uh, now, there's only three things you can work on that you can work on with any team: mental, technical, and physical. There's only three things you've got. Effortless and flow is effortless, mental, technical, or physical in the way that you mean it. It's technical. Yeah, it's technical. But it's also slightly mental. It's a kind of a in the groovy space. And what's it's, a, the other? It's, a, it's a swagger and an ease. and a, and a swagger a, and an ease. What was the other word? Uh, effortless and flow. Flow. 
uh, yeah. same sort of thing. You've got to think of another word. Effortless and flow is too similar. Confidence. Confidence. Is that mental, technical, or physical? It's mental. Mental. Okay, Lou, what were your two? Magic and? Genius. Okay, are they mental, technical, or physical? What I'm thinking of, it, it, they, were, they were a mixture of, of all three, but yes, it was that technical. I would say magical and, and what was the other word? Genius. I, genius isn't technical, that's more mental, I would have said. Um, but it doesn't really matter. The point is, that these are your words, and you're the best team ever. And the emphasis is on technical and mental. Neither of you said they were the biggest muscles. They were the strongest brutes. They were, you know, because you know what? Effort is not the solution to every problem. And rowing is an effort sport and got gone down that blind alley, that dead end, that cul-de-sac. We've got to do more press-ups than the rest of you. Well, I'm sorry, guys. That's not how you win. Winning is something that happens between your ears. Have, have Coming you met James Knight? James Knight, the guy from Maystone and Victor, he, he's, he's been around rowing forever. He, he came from Monmouth School. Um, I don't know him, no, but... No, okay. It, he would just have a field day with this. He would just be saying yes, because he's literally one of these guys. I don't think he's ever beaten 18 minutes for a 5K. I think he's gone under seven minutes for a 2K once. But he just wins races. He, I'll he, tell you, you're, you're, and this is going back to uh, what you're saying about age, age what Where the coaches were wrong, I might humble opinion is they've gone down this effort's a solution to every problem now effort will stop you losing but it won't make you win you know if you put in enough efforts and it's a six lane race you will not be the sixth but the winners the winners are the guys who've got it between their ears and that's that flexibility to not let anybody get length up on you not let anybody drop you by a minute not let anybody don't give them the oxygen to believe that they can win that's what an athlete does he starves the opposition of oxygen at every opportunity he's got, he literally makes sure they can't even consider winning. And that's what medalists do. And that's why we've got to focus on the technical and the mental. And let the, and, and the, we, of course, we have to do physical as well, but that's not going to make you win. That's why, that's why I use the expression, give me eight athletes, I'll be eight rowers any day of the week. Because the rowers concentrate on the physical. How do you grow that? How, how do you coach for that? How, how do you coach yourself for it? More to the point, well, actually, not more to the point, but parenthetically, how do we then expand that through a rowing culture which is fixated on this is the way that we do it, it's the way we've always done it? Well, we used to burn witches at stake. I think that was right. So, I mean, <laughs> you know. It, it has become an orthodoxy, and I'm getting the sense from talking to Jack and Andy and other people that rowing used to be a lot more about having fun and being and, 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 and being having that playfulness and having the, and having that fun with it rather than right we need to do three 18ks a week plus all of our other strength sessions plus our water sessions plus 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 so so how do we change the the prevailing orthodoxy and how do we coach it it is a good question because everyone will say well look at the results you know we keep winning you know we keep winning at squad level but um i don't think you know i don't think what we're talking about is something that really applies at squad level, because I think most of those guys are, are pretty solid mentally anyway. It's at club level. Um, we've got to really start to, how do we do it? I, you know, I haven't actually thought of the answer, because I never thought I was going to be asked a question, because I've kind of stopped coaching. Um, I don't know, Izzy, Izzy, I'd be winging it if I gave you the answer, but before I, before... You can blue sky it. You know, I'll tell you something we did at Marlow. Uh, Marlow, uh, well, I was in the first state there for a number of years, and um, 
we, it was a fun club rowing environment and we, we won plenty of regattas. Um, we didn't win Henley, but I still was, was in the fastest eight that Marlon's ever produced at Henley. And we, com- we used to combine juniors and seniors. Uh, the fastest eight's always combined. You know, so we, we wasn't, you know, you're, you're the oldies, you're the middle age, you're the kids. We used to mix everyone together uh, when it came to the eights. And that was always a good thing. Also, there was a guy, his name I forget, he said to us, I'm going back when I was, you know, like 30. So I'm going back 30 years ago. And he said, anybody here fancy playing? Oh, this is my other Steve Redgrave story. Anybody fancy playing rugby against Maidenhead Fifths? And we thought, yeah, 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 we'll play. Um, because we'd all played at school. And we got this guy to coach us for about four weeks on the weekends. And instead of rowing, we'd go to Maidenhead Rugby Field. And this guy would coach us. And, uh, and we played Maidenhead Fifths. And our, our, our first, we got three ringers in who had nothing to do with Marlowe, but were very good rugby players. Uh, and they were all in key positions that could sort of govern us, our sort of headless chicken effort where to go. And our first 15 lineup had Steve Redgrave in it and John Yateman in the second row. Had Mark Buckingham and me, Mark Buckingham with the Solar Olympics, uh, we were both flankers. We had junior internationals. You know, if you weren't a GB international at some level or a very good club oarsman, and uh, we, we won the, the, the game. And the uh, rugby players after said it was like tackling lock. solid lump statues there's no fat on any of you we used to run like mad and we had such fun and and because we had a game of rugby and we because you can't have a game of rowing and the camaraderie it produced in the club because we then took them on again and then we took on a few other sides um it's not to be afraid i mean i think most coaches are afraid uh to to play seven-a-side rugby or to kick a ball around or to just mix the eights together in a, you know boys and girls you know whatever age on a saturday or a sunday and just get three eights together and go you know knock six bales of shit out of each other you know because i tell you when i started i rode with um uh two guys who are very very good oarsmen and they spotted me and this other guy who were beginners and we used to go every weekend with these two really good oarsmen who are sort of the end of their career and i learned to row with people much much better than me Imagine if every Sunday we just threw the names in a hat. Doesn't matter what age, whatever, you know, just get it and just race and have fun. And it's all about getting up. However, however you know, as I said, last one to front stops is a wimp, you know. And um, just have, developing this fearless athletic mentality that winning can be fun. It's not on a spreadsheet. Yeah, that's really chiming because we're um, having l- l- just listened back to Jack's episode while I was editing it. He came up into the current GB setup via the clubs and he was constantly in and out of different boats. Because uh, we, I think we asked the question at one point, well, can you give me a proportion? How many came up the world-class start pathway and how many came up the club pathway? And we were quite surprised to find that only Graham Thomas from Agecroft had, had come into the, the current setup where, in, in his kind of bubble yeah, via world-class start. Everyone else who was a scholar had started in clubs and had had similar experiences, which, which is, which is, you know, losing your first whack of races, you know, joining in with the girls, going in with some of the seniors, then, well, I'll go here cause there's a race here. And then eventually you win one and then you, you, you crash on the next one and you have to be fished out of the river. And, it, and it, it's, it's a much more holistic experience. Well, you, you answered your own question then. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, no, he's, he's right. I just think, um, uh, you know, at the end of the day, there is not one single athlete um, at the at, in, in the squad, in the GB squad, um, who doesn't rely on other people to, for him to get there. And normally lots of people to get there. 
Um, and we've got to keep that environment where lots of people are doing lots of things healthy. You know, the, the dads that turn up to, to um, help with the timing, you know, all these people who, all the unsung heroes, the mothers who could turn up to make the, the bacon sandwiches and the tea between outings, all this kind of stuff. That's where the camaraderie's built. That's where the, the fun, the coming in freezing cold. And you know, it, it, that, that is just where the best memories are made. And that's where the love of the sport starts. And it's the equivalent of Formula One. It's in go-karts. And, you know, if we close down all the go-kart tracks, the standard of Formula One will go down. Uh, likewise in Rome. If we, if we don't keep a healthy club environment where it's fun and it's, it's, you know, raining and miserable and you hate it some days, but someone puts her arm around you and says, it's all right, have a cup of tea, you know. Uh, you know, we know you, you, you've got a PhD. You, you know, the, the smaller the gene pool, the less the IQ and we've got to keep the gene pool very big in rowing and healthy and we're in danger of sterilizing our own gene pool. I mean, th this is kind of like the hourglass demographic thing, isn't it? It's like we we've got, we've got a, he a healthy chunk of masters out there um, and got loads of juniors, but it, it's all the, it's all the sort of like late 20 something, 30 something things. And, and you know, Maidstone, I was there for, you know, I, I was rowing there every weekend for a good six or seven years. And it was only at the beginning of that and at the end of that that we had kind of settled senior forts. Everything else was masters or juniors all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and sort of, it, is, this, is this the goal that you're talking about? So having this different training environment, bringing people of that age group in. Oh, God, yeah. Of course it is. Yeah, that's what I mean. You've got to get, the, get those people involved because they've got experiences that they, they all have stories to tell. I could tell you thousands of stories that the, that's those sorts of guys who I used to look up to when I was 20. We'll, we'll tell, we'll, and I still remember some of them that, 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 you know, that they'll tell you. And they're always about sort of hilarious stories that uh, this guy called Humphrey, um, who, who was a master of psychology, who uh, painted the ethnic source Excelsior blades uh, with emulsion paint, not an old base paint, because he knew nothing about painting. And all the all the flakes of paint coming off uh, down the course, and and he got he got an old set of blades um, which weren't being used. He started drilling holes in them until some Americans said to him, "What are you doing? Have you not heard? It's about the pressure of the water." Get going through the blade helps, and I, I was just had visions of some American guy drilling holes in their blades and stuff like that. And you know, just because, just because, you just it was it was it was a it was a it was a loss. It was a strictly come dancing of psychology in rowing. It was just to do daft things that would wind up your opponents, and that's all gone. We talked about it a little bit with um, Andrew Triggs Hodge where we we never went out on the water at Agecroft just to take a boat out for a paddle and have a bit of fun. Every session was planned and every session was leading to the next session, which leading to the which was eventually leading to this race or that race or whatever. But we never actually just went, it's a really nice night, it's a Wednesday, I've been at work all day. Does anyone fancy taking a a a, a double out and just going for a paddle? It was always actually well what's on the sheet? And we've become very serious and very kind of and very kind of locked in our own environment. We've mentioned the training load at Agecroft. This there's a kind of tipping point 
or at least we know we we noticed. I think Luna and I hung on a little bit longer than than most. But most people come out of university rowing. They then go to their their local club. We would get the University of Manchester rowers coming down. They would compete. They'd uh, they'd be building their careers at the same time. And there's a tipping point that around about 26, 27, 28, when the career starts to get more serious, and there's maybe a partner. Uh, for men and women, and then there's there's a marriage, and then there's a baby, and then I I just I can't sustain this anymore, and that's when we tend to lose that vital block, who then might come back in later. Is there a way where we can we can squash the training down and keep those people in the sport so we we, we don't have this dip before they come back? Yeah, but what imagine take yourself. What imagine if you're 26, 27, other priorities have come along, and everyone said, right, at the weekends I want to get four of you guys and four beginners. In an eight or two and two, uh, would, you just, would you just give up an hour and a half uh, weekends and just will you just babysit these beginners, stick them in the middle of the four, or you 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 experienced guys go bow pair and put them stone pair, or stick them in, in the middle of four or an eight, and just for an hour, just would you just you, you, you would feel involved in your you'd still have ties for your club, you could then take out a four with your mates afterwards, but you've given maybe an hour to four people who will they 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 experience the stories they, they'll talk you'll then tell them stories over a coffee afterwards they, they will learn so much you know sitting at your knee so to speak of hearing tales of how you did this and how you did that you know and if you just were just so encouraged to do these let's call them random eights on a sunday or random eights on a saturday and people made it an in integral part of the squad training that we did random saturdays or whatever you want to call it um and you and you, you, you give it a name give it it's random saturdays and it and 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 you take the best and the worst in the in the club. And the, those who who think they're the best and say, "Well, I'm not rowing with so and so; they're just novices." I would rip their neck off because you you learn a lot by teaching somebody some sometimes. And actually, a bit of humility from the top guys in the club would be a great thing. Say, I don't care how how important you think your training is and how many press ups you've got to do. You're sitting for an hour, hour you know, random Saturdays in and eight with four beginners and that's your duty to the club and you know what you'll get something out of it as well it will remind you and to tell you why that's important and this is absolutely true story will satch who i've known for a long time a lovely bloke he came to leander uh, with a lot of puppy fat and he was cannon fodder and he eventually uh, rose up the ranks he won the thames cup uh he was one of the top leander athletes and then he went to the squad and then he was cannon fodder again and I said the difference between the top squad and good club is, you know, basically in a club, you're kind of the, the worst in the eight and you kind of get better. And then you get to the kind of top and that's kind of your career over. Now the squad, you've now, you've got to somehow knock on the door of the elite. And, and one of the things you're going to knock on the door of the elite and make you different to everybody else isn't just your ergos, isn't just your press-ups and running and all that. It's that people want to row with you that you've got this ability to make boats work. Look at Tim Foster. You're the kind of guy that you, they don't know why you do it, but when you get in a boat, boats work. And that's the kind of, that's the sort of people you want in the squad that you could put them in a four, put them in a pair and boats just work with him in it. And you learn that if you did your random Saturdays, that you might be the top four in this eight and you've got four beginners, but make the boat work. In terms of your long-term career, that's a really important skill to have. It's not about... The day you think you're the best in an eight is the day you're slowing it down. 
it's funny you should say that. We we had a mutual friend called Mark Hancock, who we, we've mentioned on the on the podcast occasionally, and he made it into our fantasy eight um, because basically he never broke seven minutes, but you could instantly tell when he was in the boat because it felt better. And he regularly raced guys who were twenty and thirty seconds faster than him on an erg out of a boat, and we used to call him the ten millimeter spanner. Because when we went out on the water, we wanted to have a 10 millimeter spanner in our boat and we wanted to have a Mark Hancock because he, he just could move a boat. He made it feel great. And he made others around him feel good. He, he set down a rhythm. And that's why I'm saying these random Saturdays, so you take them here, set the thing up, learn to set it up for other people, drop your humility, drop your ego, and let, you know, really somehow play to their level that gets the best out of it, all of us. And that's a really important skill. And I think um, I think that would be a good thing to be doing at club level. Yeah. I think I'm, I may have mentioned it before on the on the pod. I don't think it's made an episode, but one of my first experiences at Agecroft, uh, I went down after Redgrave's last stand because I'd basically been inspired. Knocked on the door. Dennis made me do a, a 2K at eight o'clock in the morning, which was horrific. Uh, went out in a boat, loved it. And about four weeks later, I was at, at the the clubhouse doing an erg and. Back then, Agecroft had been knocking on the door of Henley for quite a while, and they kept getting beaten by Leander in the semis or the finals. Um, and John Beresford, Mark Parsons, and a, a rower called Knuckles were looking for someone to go out in a four, and they spotted me, and I was about the right height and the right build, and they're, oh, it's a nice, you know, just, yeah, just just come out. We know, we know you've just started. It'll be fine. We'll stick you behind John. You can go at three, and we'll shout at you for a couple of hours, but you'll have great fun. And it was, it was one of the best learning experiences that I've ever had because I was being constantly coached by guys who were used to getting to semis and finals at, at Henley. Their watermanship was superb and they didn't condescend. They told me what I was doing wrong, but I, I learned more in that 90 minutes, one hour 45 of just hacking up and down in a four. Uh, and it, it actually meant a lot. It, it, it really made a difference. And I bet that motivated you to do your ergos properly. Yeah, and, it did. and to do your circuits and your weights properly. And I see that that's why that, that those that that one hour of no ego kindness will transform club level, and it, and it is and it's valuable for everybody. It reminds us why we do this thing. So, so what you're saying is not really about are oh, you you do this session, this sprint session, or this technical exercise. It's actually about it's more about how you get the club together and interacting and then, exactly and then the good rowing is going to is going to come from that because a you're bringing experience down the boat and you're getting enthusiasm coming up there yeah i mean i, I remember I, I i loved it when i was at thames tradesman um going back to the mid 80s when we you know we want quite a lot of things and the club spirit was so so amazing at every level of the club and i remember andy bales who was my coach saying um, you're not really keen until you get the claret and green tattooed across your chest. And uh, it, was, it was joking, I didn't get the tattoo. Um, but it was this, the fun we used to have out of the boat, but as soon as our hands touched the hull, it was ultra serious. Um, but it was intense, it was short, and, no, and concentration was through the roof. Um, but then we, you know, and we broke, uh, we, you know, bread and broke, you no know, afterwards, and it was, it was fantastic. And I still think of that with incredible fond, you know, fondness and that motivates you because you just, you don't want to let the side down. You don't want to be the weak person, the, the weak link in the chain. You want to, and 
rather than just going through the motions, you put so much into the amount you did. And that's what we've got to, got to really focus on. Because, um, by the way, you don't need to do ergos to get fit. Go running. It's a lot quicker way to get fit than ergos. Um, ergos tend to drum in bad technique anyway. Um, they are a cruel method of assessment, which they have a place. Of course they do. But if you've got 40 minutes to, to, to do something in, you'll get far fitter doing a 40-minute run than a 40-minute ergo. So in terms of time to effort and reward, running is way better. In terms of technical proficiency, etc., um, I don't think ergos are particularly – they're great for teaching the basics, but – you know, you don't teach, but you, you don't really get rhythm and balance and all the things that really matter. So you can cut a lot of that out. Um, and look forward to coming down, look forward to getting in with the guys like yourselves. Um, and just as you were in that eight where you had all this experience around you, would you be the experience giving something back to the beginner, to the, to the guy who's nervous and doesn't know if he wants to do this sport? Um, and think how valuable you'll be to your club if, you know, they knew that, guys like yourself coming down and that you're going to be lucky you're going to be you beginners are going to be rowing in this eight and everyone knows who you are because you're the, you're the you know you're kind and you're helpful um and you make wearing your club colors a real badge of honor not just something out of convenience it's a very tribal mentality i admit but i think rowing needs tribes yeah, we used to revel in the idea that we were northern barbarians coming out of the mist to steal the jackson again but but that's right. I mean, sport is not about spreadsheets and ergos. Sport is about Dick Dastardly and Penelope, Penelope pit, pit Stop. It's about good and evil. It's about cowboys and Indians. It's about giving them a black eye when you shouldn't. It's, that's what sport's about. Yeah. And within the club itself, it's about connecting as a club. So it's not, oh, they're the, they're the Henley boats. They don't talk to us because we're the dev squad. The dev squad don't talk to the novices because they're the novices and we're above them. It's, we're all a club. We all yeah. need to, to connect. Yeah. And I tell you what, when you've got that right and you get the, you, and you, and Agecroft or Molesy or not, uh, not or whoever produces a, uh, a full squad athlete and he comes back to, you know, Steve used to come back to Marlow so regularly. It's only in the latter years that he, he didn't. And you know, he was worshipped at Marlow because he would, because he put effort to come back to his club. And Jack Beaumont is right that, uh, that's invaluable for the, the long-term health of rowing. These, uh, our superstars are shared out as it were. Yeah. I, I don't know if you've had the chance to listen to either of our first two episodes, which are rather rough and ready because we didn't edit them down at all. But one of the ideas we sort of came up with on the hoof was, um, squad athletes would have to be essentially farmed out to, uh, regional heads in the winter. And, and you, you basically, you, one of your jobs would be go sort of like actually go and sit in like the bow seat and the stroke seat of a club boat in Runcorn Head or Head of the Time or, you know, some small London club going up to Head of the Neen and Peterborough would, you know, end up having an Olympian stroking it just almost on a random basis or, or some kind of... You just give me an idea, actually. But what about if, uh, if the squad coaches actually um, release the top guys back to their club? Imagine if, all the, if every single squad athlete had to adopt a club. Now, normally it might be the club you came from, but let's just say it wasn't. But let's just say you had to adopt a club and your club 
you've got to put in some uh, you know, community service for. Now, that sounds daft, because there was a point to that. Well, i tell you what, the England rugby team that won the World Cup um, in 93, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, one of the things they did is we must find something outside... It must of, be 2003, because... I was 2003, 2003, 2003, you're absolutely right. So we must find something outside of our bubble that we adopt. And they adopted um, uh, Stoke Mandeville and uh, did a lot for, uh, you know, charities. But it has to be something that they really put a lot of effort into. And if, the, if the guy says, this is okay as a bubble, we have to adopt another cause. And our cause is the clubs you came from. Or the, and you must spend some time, and I don't mean just turn up and do dinners. I mean in the boats with these guys. Because um, I tell you, at Leander, um, we do quite a lot of uh, corporate rowing days where companies will come down and we put four people who've never rowed before in their lives with four Leander athletes and we'd take them up and down and they would have a race over 30 strokes because that's all they can manage. And you think, why would a Leander athlete, you know, top of his game, top athlete in the country at club level, why would he want to give up his, um, his Wednesday afternoon to come and row with a load of old businessmen and women who knew nothing about rowing? They loved it. It just was such a, a release of a head of steam just to go up and thrash around like novices, have a crack for 45 minutes, and they never once complained. And I've done that with Leander athletes for 10 years. They've never, I've never known one Leander athlete complain about doing it. To be fair to Jack, he was, he thought he was bang alongside the idea. And he actually said, I've already bought my boat for when I'm finished. It's a, it's a, a hundred kilo single. And I'm going to go on a tour all around the country and do all of the races that I always want to do. And if anybody wants me to jump in their boat, I, as long as the guy that I'm replacing or girl that I'm replacing doesn't mind, I think that's a fantastic idea. Oh, Jack's a great ambassador for the sport and, and a lovely bloke too. Uh, I've known him a long time and he, I think that's a fabulous thing and that's a measure of the guy because he can then go to Bewdley, to, to Starport, Worcester, Monmouth, Hereford, yeah. Sydney, it's all these legendary regattas. Se Seven and Avon, yeah. Oh God, St. Neitz is good. I've won St. Neitz with tradesmen. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, I got that one a, a couple of times in, in the single. It was a great race. It's just like, oh, yeah. We're back to watermanship, aren't we? We're, we're, back, we're back to the need to, to row on more than six-lane 2,000-metre lakes. Yeah, yeah I'll tell you the guy, tell you the guy you should get on this podcast is Ross Hunter at Leander. He's one of the coaches there now, and he used to be a lightweight rower. He's a fantastic waterman. He's, he's rowed up on the uh, on Tideway and won the uh, dogged thingies and what have you, and he is a guy who knows how to move a boat and he knows about watermanship. He, you should get him on the podcast. He, he, um, he is a fantastic example of, and his, his, his brother, Mark, again, is another one. They, they both really understand rivers and understand water. They, they work on rivers and water. They, they just understand it. And I think another good, uh, person who understands watermanship was, uh, Zach Purchase. He, he, uh, he was a very, very uh, uh, gifted when it comes to watermanship. Right, I mean, that's... I mean, I mean, I think we got pretty lucky with Jack and Andrew and yourself coming on. I mean, we're, we're now talking about proper people, and this is just Lou and I talking bollocks about rowing on a kind of bi-weekly basis, so... Uh, uh, you'd be surprised how many, uh, how, how many of those guys would love an app talking bollocks about rowing, because they don't get the chance. Fantastic. Let's let's get them an email out tomorrow and see, uh, and see what happens. <laughs> just like... Oh, so, you know, in between your like, two Olympic medals, would you like to come on and sort of, like, talk bollocks about rowing? It's almost as though the format of modern rowing 
And I was really guilty about like wanting this when I was racing. The format of one rowing is now, it's making the boat like an ergo. It's yes. just kick it in a straight line. You, and, and you don't think about the wind. You don't think about the current. You don't think about where the reeds are. You, ju- you don't need to look over your shoulder. And I, you know, I recognize, I recognize that purity and it has its place. And there was a time when I really was striving for that. But actually, the nonsense of St. Neots and Sudbury, Sudbury, uh, I, I, I've actually challenged Eric Murray to uh, a race in Sudbury because I reckon I could have beaten him. And it's just this ridiculously short, tight, bendy little course. And like a third of the crews don't finish without crashing. And it's stuff like that. They're just brilliant races. Oh, yeah. But regardless of the spectators think, the rowers love it. I mean, you know, you, you, I've been in clashes and I've been swearing at the cocks and you know, and we're worried about getting disqualified and, and you, you try and keep your timing and someone's blades are getting entwined and, you know, and it makes you much more adaptable and much more athletic. It's not, you know, and I, and I come back to this word I keep using, you know, give, give me an athlete any day and I'll be to row. Um, there we go. We've got to so, more like athletes. Albeit, I, th- I think you have committed some kind of cardinal sin about saying, no, ergs don't get you fit. That, that somebody out there, when they listen to this, is just going to be jumping up and down, saying, "God damn it, no!" But but that um, can I ask? And I, I'm sure I'm, I'm I'm really sorry if I've if I've cut you off from a flow, Lewin. No, don't worry. But if if it's a case of eight athletes will always beat eight oarsmen, how how shall I phrase this? We're, we're already being sued by Temple Island, Steve Redgrave, Matthew Pinson, and James Cracknell. How can we how can we phrase this without getting more lawyers involved? The success that we've had internationally, which is fantastic, are you basically saying that the the Oz men and women who've been winning these medals and winning these golds, not that they're winning in spite of the training that they're doing, but they 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 have the mental side which you talked about, but they still they've retained the athletic side despite the demands of the rowing training. You. All the athletes you've mentioned all came back. They all came from a very strong club culture. I, I stayed in a monastery at Ghent when, uh, when James Cracknell was a junior. Um, I had the honour of coaching Ben Hunt Davis and Mark Thompson uh, in the junior pairs at Ghent, and we beat James Cracknell and Nick Clary and Greg Searle and Doran Tramner. And no one had ever heard of us. No one ever heard of Ben Hunt Davis those days or Mark Thompson. And I still have the cup. They gave me the cup. I still keep it with, with pride. Um, Steve, uh, uh, you know, I've already told you, he comes from a very strong club culture uh, and he would muck him in the club all the time. Matthew, um, again, Oxford, Eton, strong. Yeah. Um, you, haven't, you haven't named an athlete who came from a laboratory uh, with 20 ergos and mirrors and uh, scientists and professors and clipboards. You're and so, the English Institute of Sport, aren't you? Yeah, I'm saying, I'm saying that... Maybe that'll be the future, but let me put this to you, and this is controversial. If you want something controversial, listen to this, because I've upset a few people with this one. Let's take another sport. Let's take American football. They found a direct link between the impact of the head and uh, dementia and Alzheimer's, and, and the NFL is uh, putting on billions of pound, dollars for 
uh, litigation. Here, the Rugby Football Union are likewise uh, paranoid about this and are putting mass masses of reserves uh, because of the link between uh, dementia and things. There's a debate going on now in football about kids heading the ball again. Now, we don't knock, get knocks on the heads, but look at the amount of injuries that rowers have to their hips and their backs. How many top athletes uh, either during their rowing career, and I can name several, or post their rowing career have had serious hip and back injuries? It will not be long before somebody says, hang on a second, we've got a legal case here. Your life has now been ruined. And the coaches knew, they had all this data, that, these, this, that you're losing, let's say, 10% of your training time due to injury. And we're still, it's the same happened with knees um, in football. They used to put cortisone injections in them. Now you're not allowed more than three quarters. I think it's three cortisone injections in a joint. And, and after that, your career's over. If they used to put in 20, 30. You know, somebody is going to say, actually, this effort is a solution to every problem is actually irresponsible. And it's causing long-term da damage to athletes. And this is a suitable case. And that will happen probably in about 20 or 30 years' time. And that's why you want to be an athlete, not a rower. You need to be flexible. You need to be adaptive. And if your only answer is, give me a full, give to what, Jez, you take your eight athletes, I'm taking my eight rowers. I'm going to stick them in a room full of ergos, and you take them running, doing cross-country running and do your all, all that good stuff, and let's see where we end up. I'm telling you, the injury, he will have a far higher injury record, and eventually that's, that is a skeleton in the cupboard that's going to come out. And I think it's irresponsible. Jeff, do you think, because I don't know if I'm, if I'm imagining things, but I think we're seeing more and more broken soldiers in... And that's my point. In, in, the, in, in the British rank. I, do you think we're already seeing the beginnings of this? Yeah, that's my point. That's exactly my point. And, and yeah. do you think that it's coming from the more volume, more volume, more volume? Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, eventually, those broken soldiers will reach a tipping point where it will be deemed irresponsible to put them through those loads. And you've seen it in other sports, and because because the workloads that go the, the loads that go to a rose back and his hips are so 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 phenomenal. It causes a lot of wear and tear. And at what point does that wear and tear your broken soldiers and your collateral damage, if you like? At what point is that acceptable? And at what point is that irresponsible? And my own opinion is that we're not many generations away from it being irresponsible. And some clever lawyer will say, well, hang on, all the coaches knew this and they still put them through it. Let's, uh, let's file a case against them. We're living in a more and more litigious society. I'm not saying I agree with lawyers. I'm not, I'm not saying it's a, it's a happy outcome. But we've got to see beyond the ergo. We've got to see the sport for what it is. We've got to keep the humanics, not just the mechanics, alive. We're obsessed with the mechanics. We're not paying enough attention to the humanics. We, we had a, a chat with uh, Tristan McLothing a little while ago about athlete welfare, and, and he raised the point that we see the athletes on the podium who made it. We don't see the ones who, who, who fell by the wayside. And we recently talked um, with Jennifer Say, the American gymnast who was one of the driving forces behind the Athlete A program. And, and she was talking about very, very specific examples of, of highly toxic coaching cultures and, and, and abusive coaches. But towards the end of that discussion, um, Lewin raised the point that a lot of sports science 
if you put it against other scientific practices, it doesn't hold up with the same rigor. And a lot of co- a, a lot of coaching seems to be we do it this way because we've always done it this way. We do it this way because a case study indicates that this is the way forward. And the, the you know the sample sizes aren't good and the double blinds aren't aren't great. If we tie that together with what we've just said, we are basically breaking people. Steve Redgrave was already successful. Jurgen came on board. A, a, a higher volume approach was instituted. We got more success. Therefore higher volumes will equal more success so we'll keep upping we'll keep upping the training loads and it has been successful of course but it has but the, but the law of diminishing marginal but the law of diminishing marginal returns will set in hmm. and eventually effort will not be the solution to every problem now i'm not saying we don't have to put in an enormous amount of effort i'm not saying that we have to rip up the the, the whole training program so i'm not saying that at all but what i am saying is we need to take a step back and think well actually is there a smarter way? If I could cut down the injury, the percentage of training loss through injury, if I could cut that down by half, would I gain more than, you see what I'm trying to say? And that's my point is, um, you know, success is a great thing, but it can also become an Achilles heel if we don't learn to adapt. And it was ever thus. So, do more different things. Don't just do the rowing stroke. I tell you, I tell you one of the best, one of the best coaching decisions I ever made was in 1994. I was coaching Damien Wright and Stuart Logan. Uh, Stuart is a very, very good athlete. He's a very good Ironman athlete. Uh, t- even still today, he's a very, he's a very natural, natural athlete. Um, and he had been learning all of, this is when heart rate monitors were a new thing. UT2 was a new thing. No one ever really heard of them. And he was really into this low intensity thing. He said, Jez, I really want to do this an hour of low intensity. Um, and it was even on a Wednesday. I remember it that well. And Damien said to me, Jez, I've got a few pleasures in life. He was, he was, he was doing his A-levels. I like doing my weights and I like cracking out a quick ergo. That's what I like doing on a Wednesday. And the best decision I made was I said, Damien, you carry on doing that. And Stuart, you go and do your hour of UT2. They both felt listened to. They both thought I was, you know, God, like a really adaptable coach. The rest of the program is exactly the same, but we just adapted a little bit for each person to play to their strengths. Um, and that's the point, you know, just have some scope for, and then coaches have to be athletic as well as the athlete. You know, I'm a great believer. You've got to model the behavior you want back. And if coaches aren't prepared to be athletic in their mentality, how can they expect rowers to be athletic in their mentality? So I would be looking to other sports and say, how do the canoeists do it? How do the sailors do it? You know, I would love to collaborate with more sports, widen the gene pool as much as possible. I would love, can you imagine, can you imagine getting some canoeists come down, sitting on eight for a, for a Saturday morning on a random Saturdays, and then you go and have a go at uh, Homepier Point down the, the rapids or whatever in a canoe. And so I really, really desperately want to get into a kayak that fits me. But another thing that um, the guys at, at Maystone had, they had a little canoe club across the, the river from them. Yeah. And you had like the proper wobbly sprint canoes going out there every so often we saw them. And they looked brilliant fun. Yeah, but you imagine, you imagine but have a go one of them. I tell you, it will help your balance in an eight. It'll just give you more fe- another vocabulary, another lens on how to sit something and the feel of the water. There's another guy, Coach Ben Davis. Um, 
he was built like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Great big guy. 1998, I think it was. He didn't drink. He didn't mess around. He was, a, he was, a, he was, if you ever saw Twins, the movie with Danny DeVito and all, he was, he was a gone that got all the purity in it. And he got sent home from Easter trials early. And I was asked, could I help him get, you know, I, you know we had like how many weeks between Easter trials and final trials, like 10 weeks or something. And I said to him, right, we went for a drink. And I said, right, I'm going to set you a task that you are not going to be able to achieve, but I want you to have a go. He said, oh, I'll do it. I'll do whatever you say. I'm banning you from weights. Now this, I'm from somebody who likes weights. But this guy was really, he looked like I said, I'm banning you from weights and you're coming swimming with me three mornings a week. And when he first started swimming, it was like, you could throw your washing into the pool with him. It would just all be on a fast spin. He was just dragging down bubbles. He was, it was just terrible. And I say, you've got to find, find it, then use it. Find the water and then use it. And, and I was teaching to relax and stop fighting it. Um, anyway, it's about four weeks later, I came down to Marlowe and he had a bead of sweat on his head. I said, you've done weights, haven't you? Oh, it was just a couple. I said, I knew you wouldn't be able to do it. Never, ever do that again. Anyway, he got into the coop and got a silver medal. Um, so swimming, swimming can teach us a lot about finding and feeling the water. There's, there's so many ways that are, are just so, so beneficial and keep it more fun. Imagine if instead of one of those circuit trains on a Tuesday evening, you went down to the swimming pool. Um, joined in with a local swim club. God, you get, tell you what, if everyone thinks the only way to get fit is on ergo, you try and swim 20 lengths. If you're, you know, if you're not a good swimmer, it's hard work. I, I started swimming when I was at Agecroft for some of the 10Ks in the morning because I, I worked at the university and the aquatic centre was directly opposite. And it, it, it killed me. I couldn't do 10 lengths. But, but by the time I was doing the mile, you know, it took me 10 or 12 weeks to get up to the mile you do feel different and your body feels different. And I also, I also used to do UT1 and UT2 sessions skipping because I, I used oh, to... I used to... I used to I'm a, you see, I, Mr. Boxing Club is where... Um, yeah. I mean, because again, let's take the catch. Let's just talk about the catch for a second. Rowing is essentially a slow reaction sport. You do not need fast reactions to be a rower. You need fast reactions to play squash or badminton and all the rest of it. But the catch, you know... Anyone could do the middle of the stroke as well as anybody else. What defines a really good one is how, how brilliantly they get onto it and how long they hold it. That's where the genius is created. And getting onto the, onto, the, onto the water fast and sharp is the only fast reaction moment in rowing. Now, if you did some fast reaction training where you literally find exactly the right point at exactly the right time and you focus on the speed of reaction at that moment, so do some fast reaction training, that will give you... A huge advantage but we no, t tell me one rowing club that says right we're going to do some fast reaction training to help you with the catch we're going to play squash we're going to play badminton we're going to do something different to get you used to really lightning response none of them oh i, I played squash at age because um i played squash since i was a kid and no one yeah, else. i used to play squash as well yeah yeah and the, the skipping came from i worked in london and i worked with uh, lennox lewis um for a bit and he had a boxing gym at, uh, at, at his business and the training was amazing and the boxing trainers were fantastic. So oh. you'd see these huge heavyweight boxers and they were as light on their oh. feet as dancers. And Can you imagine, imagine if, you were to, if you went down to a boxing club one night a week and you don't have to hit each other, just the training on the bags with the, with the pads. They would love it. I tell you, you go three, three two-minute rounds in, in, a, in a, just, just two-minute rounds, don't, don't, you know, all, that's all you need. 
three of them, and you will be gasping for air. Even, even shadow boxing, which is I had to start, I had to swarm with four rounds of shadow boxing in front of the mirror. Even that would be breaking sweat. And you think we're not hitting anybody? You're not doing honestly. And it would just liven up the whole fast reaction, touch, feel, accuracy type mentality, rather um, than the big heavy heave through to the finish and heave through. Yeah, to the yeah, yeah, exactly. And it. Uh, and these are so many. I bet you, if you said to a club, right, we're going to do this. We're going to do random Saturdays, and that's men and boys, men and women as well. No gender bias, and we um, and we're going to get the, the really developing guys. We're going to get people like you guys to come and help with. We're going to do swimming on a Wednesday. We're going to do boxing on a Tuesday. We're going to do some ergos as well. Um, you know, we're going to do uh, whatever, and we do some. Uh, you know, just mix it up a bit. God, I, want to, I feel like I want, to, I want to go back to the right. I want to join that club. Yeah, I, I got the piss taken out of me for skipping at Agecroft. It was like, I no, get, I get, gingerbread man. I, I, are you not doing it at Erk tonight, AJ? No, no, I've, I've got the heart rate band on. I'm at the right level. I'm just going to skip it out. It's fine. My record, I'm doing a lot of it. I could skip for half an hour without stopping. I, I was very fit in those days. I, I would struggle to do three minutes without stopping now. It's, it's also a rhythm thing and a feel thing. And, and because of that, it's a spatial awareness thing because of where the rope is. I, I just found it was, it was, you know, I loved being a rower and I loved doing the training, but sitting on an erg in the cold winter months, seven days a week is not a huge amount of fun. So let's, let's just change it up a bit. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm a great fan of skipping it. Well, I'm basically a fan of course training generally. And, uh, uh, but I'm not just saying for the sake of it. I, let's go back to let's go back to where this thesis originally started, and it's could could we take eight athletes and be eight rowers? And I still maintain, given a decent length of time, so that athletes can learn how to row. I would absolutely put my money on that every day of the week. So I need to say, Lennox Lewis. I reckon he's one of the best boxers the world's ever seen. Yeah, he doesn't get enough credit. I think he's one of those underestimated boxers. I think he is. I for me, he was the best boxer there's ever been. I, I think some people would argue that Ali had a bigger cultural impact, but in terms of pure boxing ability, I think he'd be anybody from any age. He could do it all. And, I, and I think so. And he was a he was a very very gifted athlete. Yes. Very 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 flexible. Yeah, he was. Uh, I I he was just I think pound for pound the best boxer's ever been. Now of course Ali is my favourite. He's everyone's favourite. He's he's the most impact culturally. He had a he was a, he was a in it for his era. He was. Strict, but you know, Luke sort of beaten him. <laughs> I, I, I think so, but yeah, there's a lot we can learn from from other sports. Did we ever resolve how do we get this flexibility back into rowing when we've become the success has pointed us that this is the way forward? Did we did we ever come down on an, an answer for that, Lewin? I, I I'm pretty sure I know what it is. It's do it's it's do what you, you're suggesting, James. It, it's it's. You know, maybe do a couple of birds a week, have a couple of outings a week, but then, I don't know, go and do, like, body jam or, or some kind of dance aerobics or and go and have a, a boxing lesson or go swimming or I, I don't know what else you do or go and, go and find a weightlifting gym. But it's, it's doing this thing of getting athletic people and getting them to win and if you do that and it's not even necessarily winning at henry it's just if you're a club and you just go to races 
and you you know you send people to what is it? it it's the wingfield skulls and stuff like the silver skulls and you win stuff like that i i think that you know that will really just say look there's a different way of doing this and i think the the answer is you need a club that's going to adopt it i think um i think you might have to do it in sort of first we might say right we're going to do three weeks we're going to do a lot of ergo work and then two weeks we're going to mix it up a bit you might have to flex it slightly and find the balance right you might find that doing too much variety in a week they don't get enough focus done there will be a balance but the whole point i'm getting at is if every rower when they went for a run studied running technique and learned that 180 80 uh steps a minute it's the ultimate cadence they learned about their cadence they learned about their stride length they learned about their, their height and knee their back lift they actually learned to run like a runner when they ride a bike they learn to ride a bike like a cyclist when they lift weights lift like a weightlifter when they swim learn to swim like a swimmer not go be like a rower going for a swim and actually really try to find the nuances within every sport and then bring that back to their sport we will be a better place for it you're talking about increasing the tools that they have in their toolbox physically. And that, to me, and that to me defines an athlete. An athlete is a multidimensional, flexible, adaptive, resilient creature. Can't, can't disagree with that. I want a time machine. I wish I was 20 years younger and I could, I could start all over again. That sounds really inspiring. And, you know, it's, it's got to be said, I, I love Erks. I really enjoy them. I hadn't noticed. I'd, I'd never noticed that about you at all. Uh, oh, and they, and, and, they, uh, and they have a place. Of course they have a place. But I'd rather have an athlete on an erg rather than just a monster on an erg. It's opening the perspective. It's opening rowing's perspective and saying we have success to keep having success and to keep also to have a lot more fun than just pounding out the ergs. We need to, we need to widen our horizons and embrace things. Yeah, and... and of course, we, you know, there's no shortcut. Rowing at the end of the day, like cycling, it's an effort sport. You know, you can't do it without a lot of effort. But it's just making sure we get the best bang for our bucks out of the effort we make um, and keeping that mental piece really sharp and fresh. As Muhammad Ali once said, it's hard to beat an opponent who decided he's going to win. Yeah. And it's keeping that sort of mental hardness, that that comes out of all sorts of environments. You know, it's that forged steel time and time again sort of analogy. Do you think on that, are we at a kind of a point, because Lou and I, we, we, we um, talked about the last 20 years of Britain's Coxless Fours. We did it the week that Jürgen um, retired and we kind of said afterwards, but not during the podcast, you know, at some point, we're going to get beaten in the Coxless Force. Someone's going to beat us, and that's going to be a landmark day for the crew that does. Jürgen's gone. We're potentially reaching a tipping point with regards to the, the amount of volume that athletes can sustain. Are we at a kind of transitional moment in British rowing yet, Would, uh, from, your, from your perspective? Ah, oh, good question. Um... I don't know enough about it these days, intimately. I've sort of stepped away from Rome for the last few years. But my gut feeling says we are. Uh, we're definitely starting a new chapter, uh, and that'll take a bit of, a, a, a bit of time to adapt. The thing, the, thing, the thing with Jürgen, and you mustn't forget this, is he's by far the most successful coach ever. And I remember when the four won in 2012, I remember being at a lunch at Leander a bit of a time before that, and I was speaking to Ivor Lloyd, the former captain and 
head of Leander. I said to him, I cannot see that four winning a gold medal. I just can't see it. He said, you wait. Wait till the Jürgen takes them to altitude. That's when it will change. And when they came back and won in 2012, I couldn't believe how comfortable they looked, how, how strong they looked, and they won it with relative, pardon, ease. Jürgen was a time, a unique man with a unique insight for his generation. And what I'm saying is we shouldn't tear that up, but we should take it as far as it can go. And we should add to it. And I'm saying the way we add to it is look at the, where, where, where are the chinks in the armor? You know, let's look at our injury record. If we could improve that, how would, it, how would that help? Where are we getting fatigue, mental fatigue? Are we sort of checking the well-being of athletes? Let's check that. He's got 99% of it's amazing. How can we improve it? Not how can we say, well, let's start again. No, I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is he's taken it to as far as I think the effort ratio goes. Uh, and I'm saying, so where, where's the next genius come from? It comes from mental athleticism, making the guys don't feel that they're robots in a lab. It comes from technical innovations to cut down the injury rate. It comes from new training ideas that, you know, it comes, you know how can we add to, not take away, is what I'm saying. You know, dude, that's not, that's not rubbish is genius at all. But let's accept that effort is not the solution to every problem. And what's the and so what is the solution? And I'm saying the solution is technical and mental. Right. So it's, it's not it's not physical. It's technical and mental. Rather than oh my god, this is a period of transition. We we need to we need to go back to first principles. It's like okay, let's take what we have and see this as an opportunity to improve on areas that we maybe haven't developed as much. Yeah, and uh, you know. When Jack Bowman was talking about uh, the club guys wanted to see more of their superstars, I mean, he's probably talking, I can't put words in his mouth, you know, the frustration it feels being in Cavisham. And I know so many people are saying Cavisham's almost like Stalag 14. You know, it's, it's, if you've really upset somebody, we send you off to train in Cavisham. We'll, 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 we'll train the fun out of you. That'll teach you to smile. We had similar comments from Hodge about the lack of fun that was available at, um, at some camps. And nobody, but nobody is so arrogant to think that we're, we're beyond improvement. So how can we take his genius and add to it? And I'm saying, probably can't physically, but I'm sure we can technically, and I'm sure we can mentally. Those are the only three levers we've got. Yeah. Remember that. Can we, can we try a little bit of an experiment, Jez? Because we, we've realised that we've got one or two catchphrases on, on this podcast, such as, no James Cracknell's left behind. We, we wanted to start a thing where we, we finish with a, a set series of questions. Okay. And, and just like rattling them out. So for you, sculling or sweep? Now, because do I have to answer quickly or can I actually give you why I'm confused with that one? You can Not show your workings. You can show your working. Uh, my workings are basically I'm, I'm a sweep oarsman uh, and I've done very, very little in sculling. But bizarrely enough, I've had more success coaching sculling than sweep. That's the irony. I've had a lot more success as a sculling coach than a rowing coach, and I'm not a very good sculler. Fair enough. Hey, so my answer, my answer is sculling. Okay. Big boats or small boats? Small. Small. Oh, oh, small for me, big for the crowd. Okay. Start line or Phyllis Court? Oh, start line every time. Okay. Steve Redgrave, has he been carved from granite by Viking stain masons in history, or is he just a very naughty boy? He has been star, uh, carved from granite and uh, he 
um, he eats fairy dust uh, for breakfast, and he has a tears of gypsies for lunch, and he <laughs> and he sits at the feet of uh, uh, Caesar in the walls of Rome. Ah, superb! Uh, right, so Matthew Pinson, Steve Redgrave walking into a revolving door together. Does James Cracknell come out first? They have a clash, and there's a restart. Um, the umpire starts them again. They have another clash, and they call the whole thing off. Uh, they decide, and they decide to look at the technology and never use revolving doors again when those three are involved. <laughs> <laughs> Probably very sensible. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> um, I, think you've, I think you've just ended our, our let's have a finishing question section because I can't imagine anybody ever giving better answers. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Jess Moore. And I actually think for several reasons, that was really quite controversial. I think fundamentally, we've got a man here who is a lit who clearly knows his stuff. First of all, this is a man who's operated pretty much at every level of rowing that this country can provide, other than racing as an international. So he's been extremely high performance club level athlete. He's coached at the junior international level. He's coached at the senior elite level. He's really has seen it all. He knows his stuff. He's clearly not just a rower. He's a sports fan. I, I, I thought that was really interesting that, you know, it's, you know, it's not just, I know about rowing. It's, I know about rowing. I know about football. I know about running. I know about boxing. I know about cycling. And sometimes I think, you know, again, is there a lesson that we can take from that? Is there this idea that maybe as rowers, we should reach out and grab a few other sports? Aaron. That is indeed my name. I would wholeheartedly agree. I hate it when I have to do that with you. It completely spoils the point of this podcast. But um, controversial, yes. Jez is clearly a man who draws from a broad palette. And let's be quite frankly honest, you know, we, we love rowing, but we do get a little bit siloed about the fact we are rowers. What do we do? We row. What do we do when we row? We sit on the erg and we pull hard. We Sometimes we pull hard for short distances and it hurts a lot. And sometimes we pull hard for long distances and it, it doesn't hurt quite as much, but it's just as shattering and draining, really. And Jez is saying, well, you can take eight rowers, give me eight athletes and I will beat your eight rowers. He's not saying that British rowers don't have the athletic mindset. He's very clear about the fact that at the elite level, you are dealing with people, with individuals who have that mental flexibility and that mental toughness. But he's saying what they do in the squad doesn't necessarily translate down to the club. Club rowers are not international elite. So why, why do we tend to, in our clubs, train like international elites? He's basically saying... Give me those eight athletes. They'll do two runs a week. They'll probably do a weights session or a circuit session of some description. Might be swimming, could even be boxing. We'll probably do an erg now and then. And um, yeah, I reckon I reckon I can beat your rowers. Okay, I'm fairly sure there are like the two coaches who listen to us are probably saying, "Yeah, bollocks." You know, I've, I've got rowers. They're drilled. They're trained. They know what they're doing. It was a very interesting way of looking at something, and, and certainly something that both at my level as a 
as a man rapidly approaching middle age and a sort of rower rapidly approaching middle age and also as a teacher who sees lots of teenage rowers, I do feel that there is a much, there is a call for greater variety in the training we do. His point was, yes, we can sit on an erg, but we can sit on an erg. And I think that Lou and I grew up in a generation where we were expected to, we, we were told that we should be trying to mirror on the erg what we were doing in the boat so that we were reinforcing our, our good habits and getting rid of our bad. And Jez made the point that, well, really, ergs are nothing like boats. Boats are, are dynamic, fluid, reactive environments, and ergs aren't. He also made the point that a lot of rowing is heavy and steady. And actually, the, the only point where you need to be dynamic and on it is, is, at, is at the catch when the, and getting the blade in the water and getting the legs on in a dynamic, explosive fashion to get pressure on the pin. And the reality is, as rowers, we're not doing a lot of dynamic training. Bag work and boxing, we're not doing skipping, we're not doing pad work, we're not doing anything that's, that's light and quick and fun and that's mentally engaging you. We're doing a lot of very heavy, steady sessions. And the feed from that is something that, that we've touched on on this pod quite a lot, which is we, we lose rowers at a certain point. We, we lose rowers in their mid-20s to late-20s to early-30s when, when life and other things get in the way, and they may come back to master's. But we are losing a lot of experience that could be passed on to juniors and younger rowers. We're losing core of clubs. We're losing a lot of the kind of the dynamism that makes a club environment a great environment to learn in. I thought Jez's ideas about cross-pollinating between juniors and seniors and mix it, mixed boats, mixed sex boats, you know, um, and doing it regularly so that the club comes together as a tribe. I thought that was, that was really important and really inspiring. It had, it, he was someone who had clearly been in a club environment where all these kind of like ideas that we've been throwing out about kind of mix things up, try something different, try something that's fun orientated rather than just grunt and training orientated had actually been tried and they've really done them. I also think that, you know, his ideas about we're going to have to try a few new things at the elite level were very interesting and very controversial. This idea that we have pulled, we have pulled the effort lever when it comes to training internationals as hard as we can. And we've now got the, you know, we're now going to have to look at other ways of doing things and possibly even scrolling the effort back a little bit. I, I think there's a there's a fear of the loading that's on elite athletes, which we've, we've touched on in, in other podcasts. And there's the idea that there are still things to explore in the realms of the mental and, 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 and the technical. I think generally, and I don't want to paraphrase Jess because he speaks very eloquent for himself, He's calling for a more fun, dynamic environment in, in rowing. And I think Lou and I would probably say when we were rowing, we wore the amount of training that we did as something as a badge of pride. We are serious rowers. We, we do 24 hours a week of training. That means we are proper rowers. Well, actually, yes, that's great. And we did it. And I think we're both glad that we did it and we had the experiences that we had. 
but if we get so serious and po-faced that we are telling people at the door, well, to be a rower, to be a rower, you, it, it's very serious and it's very hard and you, you have to train so hard and it's just graft and slog and graft and slog. Most people are going to go, I am going to go and do dancer-size because that looks about as much fun as having my winnets reamed with a wire brush. Why on earth would I want to do that? And I, uh, obviously I'm using a Geordie colloquialism there, but I think Jez is saying, look, I came from a club environment where we would, we would play rugby for fun. We would do mixed boats. We would do all of these things. And it wasn't beneath someone like Steve Redgrave to sack off an international training session and come back to his <laughs> club and, and have a bit of a rag about because it was his club. So I think we can we can lose the seriousness, we can lose the po-facedness, we can recognise the amount of work that goes into being a high-level rower, but we can do it at a very good level at club level while having a huge amount of fun. I think so. Um, and also, also, the tradesman connection. We keep hearing this club. We keep hearing the name Thames Tradesman. We, we need to talk to someone about the history of Thames Tradesman, I think. Yeah. This is, if if someone from Thames Tradesman is listening to this, and we know that you are Thames Tradesman because you want to see if we are playing your drinking game, and quite frankly, with the, with the Winnets and the wire brush analogy, I obviously have, even though it's barely, the sun is barely over the yard arm. We would love to hear a bit more about you because we've now had Pete, we've now had Jez, we've uh, just talked to Martin Cross... You seem to be doing a lot. So will you come on and have a chat with us about it? I'm, I'm going to call it there. I'm going to say stroke side holding, bow side out. Off you go.